Good morning. My name is Kristen Loney. Today we are going to be reading from Matthew 13, verse 47 through 58, which can be found on page 819 of your Pew Bible. Matthew 13, verse 47 through 58, page 819. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Jimmy. Hey, let me uh, do a couple quick housekeeping things, and then um, I'll pray for us, and we'll jump in the text. First one is like literal housekeeping. Um, I don't know if you've been down this hallway, but I think it was April we had our work day, and we were cleaning out some rooms, trying to make some space for more kids' rooms. And since then, there have been treasures and priceless items just waiting in this hallway for you to come and pick them up. So we have called uh, shelters. I think most of the things were probably donated to us, so they're on their second life. We've used them well, but there are some gems down there. There's some chairs and some desks. So this week, we're doing like the Facebook thing of like, come and get it if you want it. I just thought if you wanted anything down there, uh, there are some pretty cool chairs and there's a couple bookcases. So down the hallway, this direction, uh, we've been supposed to say that for the last like, couple of weeks and we always run out of time. So I thought before I do anything else, I'm going to say literal housekeeping, go grab those things. Okay, second one, more metaphorical housekeeping. The next two Sundays after church, we're going to have two meetings. Next Sunday will be a quick vision meeting. I'll lead that. We'll gather right over here. It's a an opportunity just to tell you a little about what we're trying to do as a church. I'll let you ask some questions and share with you what it means to be involved in our church. So if you're new or feel new, we'd love for you to stick around. We'll just give it about a five-minute buffer, and then we'll start right after the service next week. So the vision meeting is next Sunday. And then the following week on July 17th, we're going to host a forum after our service just to revisit and talk through our response to the abuse situations in our denomination, what we're trying to do preventatively here in our church. 
We want to hear from you, give you a place to ask some questions, tell you what we're trying to do as a church, kind of the ways we're trying to approach proactively and then responsively to things that we are hearing, things that have happened. And so we'd love for you to come and stick around for that. So again, it'll be a chance just to ask some questions. We'll share with you kind of where we are trying to go, things that we're focused on, but we really want to hear from you as well. So that will be right after the service on July 17th. So if you want to mark your calendar, uh, we'd love for you to come and be a part of that. And then this Wednesday is our first Wednesday prayer gathering, which we've been doing for almost a year now. Um, And they're just a flag in the ground saying, as a people, we believe that we need God, that he listens when we pray, that he both aligns our heart with his heart when we pray, and we get a chance to cry out to him for help. And so it's always the right response in whatever we're facing. But in light of kind of where we are, even that announcement of abuse um, situations in our domination, thinking about our Supreme Court decisions this week, like we just want to be a people that are praying and praying regularly. So I want to invite you to come and join us Wednesday night. We'll primarily be focusing on just how do we respond as a church? What are the needs? What are the opportunities for mercy and justice that we can move towards in our community? Asking God to open our hearts up to be more compassionate. We'll take some time to lament. We'll pray over some biblical truths just to ground us. And then we'll ask for God to make us wise as we think about engaging in a really fallen and broken world in the name of Jesus. And so as you've just wrestled this last week wondering, like, what do I do? How do I respond? I would love to invite you just to come and pray with us. So that will be Wednesday night at 630 in this room. Let me just say this, like I never want you to have to wait for us to take action or to pray or to cry out to Jesus. Uh, I know this last week, a lot of you have been praying and fasting and asking for wisdom. And so that's always the right response. And I just want to like encourage us as a people. And I hinted at this in my sermon last week. I think God has gifts in our body to respond to the needs in our community. And though we want to help mobilize and equip, we don't want to get in your way or slow you down. So as you see needs, man, we want you to move towards them. Our, Our philosophy is that we would have some things that we share together and collaborate on and try to focus on as a body, but then we want to have like a decentralized approach where we are on mission and showing mercy in as many places as you are in the city. And so I want to like talk about that a little bit, how to step towards that, but I want to make sure as we go forward and then we think through like where we want to plug in as ministries, what dreams are in our hearts, that you feel free not to wait on us, even as you begin to lead us through your prayers and your responses. So, so what I'm asking you to do is come pray with us, come help us, come bring your visions and dreams, and especially those of you who have gifts that are focused on like mobilizing others. Some of you guys have pioneering and empowering gifts that will break down walls and help other people kind of find pathways to move towards justice and mercy when it comes to walking alongside unwed mothers, coming alongside families that are struggling, supporting people that are doing foster care and adoption, thinking through what is a holistic kind of commitment to life actually look like in our community. I think a lot of you have burdens and dreams, and you will, you will help us. And don't, don't wait for us. So there's some places where we're already involved. So we're already partnering with Single Mom KC. We're already partnering with an urban ministry that is working with really resilient, beautiful families, but families that would be in that at-risk category. So we're already partnering financially and with volunteers there. So I want to tell you about those things and push you towards those things then also free you to whatever God has put in your heart. We want to engage together as a people. And, and as I tried last week to use the parable of the treasures to ground us in like an orienting reality of the kingdom of God that's at the E on the I chart, it's the thing that drives and orients and shuffles everything else that we think about, that that call 
um, is a call to see Jesus as our greatest hope, to see him as the one who offers us the good news, to see him as the one who, if we trust in him, he will rescue and save. So we talked about like politics not being what saves us, but we want to make gospel application to politics because it's where, it's where you live your life. Politics is a terrible gospel. It will only harm and fail. It can't carry the weight of the good news of the kingdom. But as we apply the good news of the kingdom, we want to apply it into the real places where you live. And so we talked about spaces where we look through a glass dimly and where we're blind. We don't see things clearly. So we should ask for wisdom. And there's places where we're really limited. We don't have all the perspectives. And so that requires humility from us. And there's places where, as we've participated in this kingdom of the world and kind of grown into a kingdom of self, we've absorbed values and desires and perspectives and longings and attitudes and postures that actually are counter to the kingdom of God. And that requires repentance. So wisdom and humility and repentance is the posture of God's people as we engage in culture. And that's not just a new, like, 2022 in light of the Supreme Court kind of strategy, that is the way God's always called his people to respond. It's, it's the ancient path that God has given us to engage in a fallen and broken world as we partner with him to see mercy and justice kind of spread throughout our fallen and broken communities. So, so this humility and this wisdom and this repentance is not a new thing for us. It's rooted in our mission as a church. And again, it, it is the ancient way, but I fear sometimes that we lose our way because there's, everything is just so loud. Everything is so extreme. We feel things so deeply. And so in that space, I thought I would just kind of start before we pray to remind you of some of the ancient things that God has said. Because when we're not sure what God has said and we feel overwhelmed or anxious or we feel, we feel like we're in a space where we don't know what to do, we fall back on what's familiar to us. But growing up in a fallen and broken world, often what's familiar to us isn't in line with the kingdom of God. It's reflexes that the scriptures call like of the flesh. So we'll use anger and malice and slander and we'll soothe ourselves in ways to respond to what's in front of us. So can I just remind you of some of the ancient ways? Deuteronomy 6 tells us that the supreme thing we do is love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the thing that we're about. 2 Chronicles 7 tells us that we humble ourselves and we pray we seek God's face and we turn from our wicked ways. This is that humility and wisdom and repentance. Then he responds. Micah 6, 8 says that he has told you, O man, what is good. You wonder what to do. He's told us, this is what the Lord requires of us, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. The Psalms are full of cries out for help and for mercy to bring our pain to God, to ask him to intervene, ask him to, there's even vivid imagery of like break the arms of the oppressors. Would you stop the power they have in our world? Jesus says things like, let children come to me. In the Beatitudes in Matthew, he names for us a counter value to our world. He says, those who are blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit, who, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who make peace, and those who are willing to endure persecution for righteousness' sake. That's the way Jesus calls us to live. We see from 1 Corinthians 13 a call to love. We see in James, one of the brothers of Jesus, 
we see this idea that true religion is to care for orphans and widows. And right above that, he tells us to watch out for how we talk. Be careful with your tongue, he says. And another follower of Jesus, Peter, one of the early disciples, who often said really bold things in misplaced ways. He has this section in chapter 5 of one of his letters where he tells us to humble ourselves, to cast our anxieties on God, to be sober-minded, to be watchful. We have a real enemy, the devil, who is prowling around. There are places where God has given us very clear exhortations to lean into in a confusing, distorted, overwhelming world. I want to remind us as a people of the ancient ways that God has told us to respond, and that will absolutely make application to whatever new thing comes our way, whatever old, recycled version of evil comes our way, all the distorting, confusing half-truths that swirl around your mind. God's given us ways to actually be grounded and rooted. That's where we were last week, and we used these parables of Jesus from chapter 13. It was such a mercy of God in my mind to put us in these parables of hidden treasure and great price to say this is the most important thing, to start kind of a conversation about how to respond, looking at who God says is the most important, what he says is most important as we actually pursue the king and his kingdom. So from that space, man, I want to ask you to take a deep breath. We've got a long way to go, and we're already doing quite a bit. Like, I want you not to find despair in the situation. Like, we're already praying. We're already serving. You're already loving people. You're already involved in the world around you. God surely wants us to do more. We can ask him the way we think about mustard seeds and leaven, to have these small things begin to spread in really robust ways around us. So I want to just remind you of that. Come and pray with us on Wednesday night. I think it is how we actually engage in this work primarily. So let me pray for us now, and then we'll jump into this text. Jesus, that's a whole lot of things. That's a, a big introduction, actually a review. It's a summary. It's uh, some random thoughts. But now, Holy Spirit, would you take those things, and would you plant them in our hearts? Do you care about what's happening in our world? Do you care about how we're responding to what's happening in the world? You care about the broken. You care about places where we are broken. You care about our sin. You care about our transformation. So would you come and would you help? Would you speak in really powerful ways, in ways that we can hear your voice, in ways that feel very practical? And would you surprise us? There's probably things we're asking you to do or looking for that are in line with your word and some things that are not. And there's things that are in your word that aren't even on our minds. So this morning in particular, Would you remind us of what's true, what you've told your people? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Hey, so we're in chapter 13, which is the last of these seven parables or stories that Jesus tells. The whole time we've been in this series, I've had this situation in my mind, thinking about the power of story. So when Ada and I were going through premarital counseling, so this is like 1998. This is a long, long, long time ago. We go through premarital counseling, and there's a tool that we used where we were supposed to kind of rank our biggest strengths and our biggest weaknesses. It was to help the counselor talk through where we knew we needed to grow, where we felt pretty confident. And that you take this like 165-question inventory, then you sit down with a counselor, and the first exercise is, all right, hey, why don't you name your top three strengths and then your top three weaknesses, and then we'll share them. And so as we shared them, I thought our number one strength was communication. We talk through that for a little bit. We get to our weaknesses. Guess what Adrian thought was our number one weakness? 
communication. So here we are, at our, we're not even at the gate yet, and we can't even communicate about what we're most struggling with when it comes to communication. It, early years of marriage would prove that she was much more right than I was as far as how we communicated. But there's this launching into like, well, I thought we communicated well, so how do we communicate? How do we put like James 119 into practice to be quick to listen and so to speak and so to become angry? And as we read and talked with people and sought some wisdom and blew it royally and really struggled, we came across this little book that used the power of story as a way to communicate to your spouse. I don't know what all the book was about, but the thing that stands out to me the most was, was this story of a wife who felt like her husband was both working too much and spending too much time with his friends, and for weeks and months had been telling him that. She's getting more and more frustrated. She's getting more and more hurt, and he's just kind of oblivious. She keeps saying, hey, I wish we spent more time together. Hey, I think you're spending too much time at the office. Hey, I feel like on Saturdays you're out with your friends, and we need you at home. And she's been saying this over and over, and he's just totally missing it. So one day she meets him at the door as he gets home from a fishing trip, and he says, I feel like your fly rod. And he's not quite sure what's happening. Is this like we're moving towards the bedroom or what are we doing here? Like what's happening in this moment? She says, I feel like your fly rod. I feel like this really valuable thing that you have around you. But I feel like you took this fly rod and you just left it out in the grass. And it rained and it rusted and it went through several seasons and snow hit it. And now this thing that's really valuable that you said you really value has fallen into disrepair. That's how I feel as your wife. And then the story like opens up, and I don't know, I'm sure it's like the, not exactly true to what actually happened, but then he falls down, weeps, gnashing of teeth, <laughs> repents, and finally hears her because of the story. She told a story to connect to his heart. The entire Bible is a story about God reaching out to people who have pushed away from him. It's one long love story of Uh, A God who is pursuing people who initially reject him and say no. And the story unfolds and we see all the pain and all the hurt and all the sin for millennium of this rebellion. And what we see in the middle of that story is this relentless pursuit of God as a groom pursuing his bride. And then Jesus comes on the scene and the story begins to be more clear of how God was going to keep all of his promises. And so then Jesus tells a lot of stories, and what he's doing in those stories is trying to capture our hearts and remind us of what God has said. He's trying to get at the details of our heart, not just the application of our minds. He's trying to get past just thinking right thoughts to to feeling right, that we are first desiring beings. And so Jesus tells stories throughout his Gospels to encounter us, to reach us. And we've said they're not just like neat stories so that we can only better understand. They're actually meant to provoke us. Jesus says twice in chapter 13 that there's some some mystery and some hiddenness in these stories. So he's not just putting the cookies on the bottom shelf so we don't have to work at it, telling us these neat little stories like Aesop's fables. It's not quite like that. They're actually intended to provoke us, to, to shock us, to have us encounter them in ways that we move towards humility and repentance, to, to say things about the world and about God and about ourselves that are true that we often And he strings together seven of them in this chapter as if to say to us, no one story or illustration would capture all of it. There's this 
composite sketch of the love of God, this composite sketch of the mercy of God, the composite sketch of how he's working in the world. And as we lay these stories over each other, we begin to see more fully who Jesus is and what he's like. And in fact, he'll tell more parables in the book of Matthew because these seven are not complete to give us an accurate picture of his kingdom. So it's not like they are a Rembrandt that has all this detail to it. They're more like a Monet that has more of an impression that you see as you encounter it. You see what he is like, even if the details are still not quite clear. But Jesus is telling stories to grip our hearts. And this last one, I think, is a shocking mercy. I don't know how you thought he would land the plane, but he ends it with talking about hell. And you're like, great. So last week we're talking about abortion. This week we're talking about hell. Haven't you read church growth books, Pastor Chris? I haven't actually, but this is where Jesus has us. He has us in this place because I think he loves us. Jesus cautions us about eternal punishment because he loves us. And as he's telling the story of the kingdom of God, he wants you to understand, yes, it has great value. Yes, it moves like mustard seed and leaven. Yes, it's generous like a sower that's sowing seed all over the place. But yes, also there is an enemy. Yes, also there's one who comes alongside and sows things that are wicked next to the things that God sows in his kingdom. Yes, also there is judgment for those who stand in rebellion to the king and his kingdom. In these seven stories, twice he's going to mention hell, which I think is really instructive for us who who are not quite sure how to think about that. It's pretty off-putting. But Jesus is very unambiguous about hell because he doesn't want us to go there, because he longs for people to be united to him, because the groom has come for the bride, and he wants us to know what's at stake so that we'll actually respond. In this composite sketch, Jesus lands this section on this image and portrait of judgment. We just have said for a long time, like every warning is an invitation. Every challenge of judgment like this is a welcome to come close to God. So you'll hear this in different ways based on your perspective. But I want to engage this text. I want to just kind of quickly talk about where we've been so far so that if you've missed it, you can kind of catch up with us. And then we're going to talk about where this story is heading. We're going to talk about like how we should live in light of this story and then who you see the storyteller to be. That's how we'll work through it. So real quickly, like, what is the story he's been telling? It's a story of God's relentless love that started all the way back in chapter 1 of Matthew, of God keeping his promise to send a Messiah to come and rescue and redeem. Jesus has taught that. He's proven it with miracles. And he's told these seven parables of the kingdom to tell us that God is welcoming people, To set our expectations, that often starts small and it grows over time. The the people are expecting a military messiah, a conquering king to come. And he says, no, I come way more like an agrarian illustration of small little seeds and things like leaven, things like yeast that over time grow. And there's opposition. He says there's opposition in this. And there's a long waiting as we wonder how God's going to go forward. And we see weeds growing up next to wheat. And we wonder what to do about that. He's setting our expectations about his authority and his power. He's told us again how valuable the kingdom is. And he's told us now that those who choose to reject this king will face judgment. That's where the story 
has been. So, so where is it heading? Look with me in verse 47. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good, container, sorted the good in containers and threw away the bad. And then he gives an explanation, just like the parable of the soils and parable of the weeds. He gives an explanation. So it will be at the end of the age. This thing is heading towards the end of time. It's on a line. The Messiah's kingdom is on a line. It's not a circle. It's a line moving towards the end of the age. And the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, which is an image of hell. In that place, there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Jesus, as he's inviting people to trust him and to see him as beautiful, to see him as the one who has great value, the one who's worth selling everything, wants to make sure you don't casually encounter that, that you realize there's something on the line that lasts for forever in what you do with the king. And he says, in this world, there are those who are following after God and in his kingdom and those who are not. What's mysterious to us about this is the way the rest of the Bible talks about our state as people. The scripture is really clear, actually, that none of us are, are born or choose to be good on our own. By birth and by choice, we are born separated from God. So, so all of us actually would find ourselves in that bad category, worthy of being thrown out. And there's something about the mercy of God and what he's done for us that makes it possible for us to align ourselves with the kingdom as the king moves towards us in mercy and to all who will trust in him, the scriptures say. He gives the right to become children of God. Not children of wrath, but children of God. And he wants to say, and it's all over this, like when it, when it was full, at, at the end of the age, when everything was coming to be, he's saying this story has an end to it. And we labor and we wonder and we get confused in these spaces that we're in right now, wondering why does God allow all this evil? But the scriptures tell us he's allowing it now so that people would have time to repent and turn. Because the moment he comes back and sorts everything out, those who are not aligned with him will face certain judgment. And so there's this mercy even in the fact that he's not yet returned a second time. Because when he comes, he's not coming to make pardon. He's coming to actually bring about judgment. And he's waiting now for people to actually respond. In all these beautiful stories about the kingdom, there's this warning that this thing is heading towards judgment. And in that space, there's lots of questions maybe that you have. And that probably hits you in some different ways. Maybe in, maybe in three primary ways. For those who are aligned with God, who's trusted in Christ, who are in this crazy world, and you're wondering, what should we do? How do we engage? Should we bring about judgment on our own? Is it up to us to punish the wicked? Hear in this that God is the righteous judge who will come so you can trust him. There's a call to a kind of person who is aligned with Jesus to hear a patient call to trust the one who is just and merciful to sort everything out in the end that you don't have to do that. You don't have to judge your neighbors. You don't have to judge your friends. You actually don't get to, nor do you have to stand in judgment over your brothers and sisters. There's a call to that. There's another kind of person, though, I think who hears this, who's in the space where you've been oppressed, where the wicked has actually not just been an ideological thing, it's been a very practical thing, where you've been 
harmed. You face loss. You, you've given up money and reputation and relationships. The way people have slandered and it harmed you, you, it's actually cost you something. Some of you have been abused and you've been literally harmed by evil people. And you're wondering, does God even care? Does he even notice? And why is he allowing this to go on? And for you, this word is a comforting word that the just judge of the world sees you and he will make all things right. That this thing is moving towards a place of justice and mercy and the king will make all things right for those who've been oppressed and no one will go unpunished. There's a comfort in that space as you wish things were different, as you long for things to actually change, to trust the one who sees the oppressed and is working not just for their good, but for their ultimate vindication. The righteous judge will judge all the worlds. And there's a third person who hears this parable and is not in line with the kingdom of God, who stands outside trust and confidence and affection and worship of King Jesus. Maybe you're seeking, maybe you're asking questions, or maybe you have a hard-hearted rebellion. You hear these words, and like the people later, you actually are tempted to reject. Whether you're saying just not now or not ever, there's a place here where you won't align your heart with King Jesus. And for you, this comes as a warning. That Jesus isn't just trafficking in ideas. There's eternity on the line. He's telling us a story, and again, I think it's significant that he's told us twice in these seven parables about the ultimate judgment that is to come. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's kind. Yes, he's beautiful. Yes, he's generous. And yes, he is the just judge. And his mercy and his justice come together as he judges the wicked. And the Bible defines all of us as wicked. And then there are those who've trusted Christ to atone for their wickedness, letting Jesus bear the wrath for their sin so that they are forgiven and free. But for those who reject that, they bear the weight of their own sin. For those who say, no, Jesus, I won't trust your kingdom. You deal with the just judgment that is rightly yours. In that space for that group, there's a warning. There's a sober caution. There's this reminder of what's true. And it actually sets our hearts to remember like this world has consequences. We really are just here for a little while. Eternity is where we'll not just spend the majority of time. It'll feel like all of our time. In that space, Jesus says things like the great treasure of the kingdom is worth selling everything that you have. And and if you don't, then you'll face the judgment of finding treasure and other things that were rebellious and in, in places of opposition to the king. So there's a call to forgiveness. There's a call to repentance. There's a call to understand what's going on. Again, every warning has an invitation in it. So wait for God to judge. He sees you if you're oppressed. And this is not something that you just want to wait on. There's a call for a decision. I think it's fascinating that Matthew closes down this section by showing us how people respond to Jesus. They, they hear his words, they see his works, and they, they're astonished, it says, but it also says that they take offense to him. And those are kind of your options, right? To be astonished and worship and trust him, or to take offense and say no to him. Jesus just loves you enough to make it abundantly clear what's happening. Because his kingdom is one of both justice and mercy. He offers you mercy, though you deserve his judgment. Trust him, look to him. That's the call in that section. So so where is this thing going? It's going towards the ultimate expression of righteousness and justice. 
That has lots of implications. It's great news, and it's really sobering, terrifying news for those who are in rebellion to the king. Sit in that. Jesus tells the story so you put yourself in that space and be provoked. So it would set your expectations. It would reorient your understandings. It would actually change how you see the world around you. So if that's kind of where it's going, then how should we live in light of this story? Just real quickly in verse 51 to 52, we see after he's told the story, he turns and he says, have you understood these things? What do you do in response to these things? And they say, yes. And then he says, every scribe has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. He's like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let me just make some quick application from this. Clearly in this section, scribes are those who are the ones who understand and then are supposed to share the meaning of the law. So if you understand what the kingdom is about, they say, yes, great. Every scribe then takes the treasures of these things and shares them to bring them out of the houses, to put them in front of people to explain them. So there's a call in this to share the story. Those who understand the story are to take the treasure of the story and put it on display. Right? It's a simple call for those who understand it to share it. And we'll see in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. It's the same idea to take these stories and help people understand what it means to actually follow after Jesus. Scribes share what they've understood to be true. And then he says to share it as a complex story, both the old and the new. But notice the order. He says first the new and then what is old. The scribe who understands takes his treasures from his master's house and he brings them out, both what is new and what is old. I think there's lots of things we could talk about here, but at the very baseline, it's saying you share a message of the kingdom that takes into account what God has always said and what Jesus is now interpreting for us and explaining for us in the kingdom. The old is the old covenant. It's what we read in the Old Testament. It's the way God has talked to his people for millennium. That is the story of God. There's not a different story. That is the story of God. And then you also bring in what is new about the way Jesus has been explaining and the way Jesus has been modeling, the way Jesus has been demonstrating the power of the kingdom. So remember in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you these things. And we said he's not canceling those things out. He's adding to them. He's explaining them. He's he's stretching them out in ways that we have a fuller understanding of what's been said. So we share the complex story that has both judgment and mercy that has a loving God who would sacrifice himself on a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of people and would send people to hell for eternity if they reject him. That is a complex story, a story of God who's sovereign in control of all things and who calls us to choose and to respond and to have agency. That is a complex story. To hold together the promises of the Old Testament with what Jesus is demonstrating in the New Testament is this complex story, and it requires us to have this beautiful kind of both and rather than an either or. The kingdom of God is too big for an either or. It is a both mercy and justice. It's both sovereignty and choice. It's both you're responsible and God will always have his way. Both of those things were to share in the story, and the story is just telling us that over and over and over again. So scribe share, scribe share a complex story. And I think the order is somewhat important. Normally, chronologically, you would say share the old and the new. It's even how I've talked about it. But you notice what Jesus says? They share what is new and what is old. 
I think a simple way to understand why is to say we are looking back to the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. We're using the new to interpret the old. We're having a Christ-centered understanding of what God has always promised. So we read the promises of his descendants. We read the promises of land. We see promises of blessing. And we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. He's the one all this thing was pointing to. So how do we live in light of the story? We share it. We share the complexness of it, the fullness of the story, like Jesus has been doing. But it's a, it's a sentimental thing, and it's a shocking thing. It's a comforting thing, and it's a very disruptive thing. And the kingdom of God is like that, right? Because it's not just the story that we would invent to make ourselves feel good. It's what God has revealed to us to actually come and rescue us. So, so the order is important as we seek to hold on to really complex things, to, get, to give warning and offer love. And it keeps us out of the woods of exaggerating one thing over another. I don't know if you know, but throughout history, people have even seen like two different gods, like a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament, because there are things that seem so, so starkly different. Jesus is saying, no, a scribe who understands the kingdom brings both out and puts it in front of people. The God who keeps promises, who, who also judges his enemies. is a God of war and a God of mercy. To pull all that together, that's the God you have to deal with, he's saying. And again, what we see is they struggle with that. They're confused by that. So they're not quite sure what to do with it, right? So let's talk about how important it is you understand who the storyteller is. Look in verse 53. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from there. And he went into his hometown, the ordinary hometown. And he taught them in their synagogue. So then they were astonished by what he was teaching. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Just know for a second, they weren't questioning if he was speaking truth. They weren't questioning if the works were real. They knew it was true. They saw what he was doing. Their question was, how on earth does such a common man come up with these things? In verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Didn't he have like an ordinary job in this ordinary town? Is this not Mary's son? Isn't this not the unwed mother that we all had questions about? Isn't this the illegitimate bastard child of Mary who's speaking in this moment? Isn't he common and maybe on the outs? Isn't he the one who actually the whole time he's growing up, we're suspicious about who his real dad is and what's going on? Isn't he the son of Mary? Isn't he an ordinary brother? Doesn't he have James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And doesn't he have these sisters that are with him? Isn't he just like a part of an ordinary family in an ordinary town, an ordinary space that actually has maybe a smudge on his reputation? Isn't he just plain ordinary? Where did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. They hear these stories of the kingdom and they say, no way, not this man. This man is too ordinary. They were looking for one who would be amazing, one who would be beautiful, one who would be powerful. The scriptures tell us that the Messiah came and didn't have beauty or power in himself in a way that we would be attracted and drawn to. He actually was a ransom and a sacrifice and, and was rejected. So Jesus responds by saying, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. Those who see him as ordinary have a hard time understanding him in his own household and because of their unbelief it says he didn't do very many works there he didn't respond there he didn't show mercy there he didn't do things there because they didn't want him to as I think about him closing down these stories and we get this little snapshot of their rejection of the storyteller 
I think it's fascinating to ask how, how you see Jesus. How do you see the teller of these stories? Does he seem like ordinary to you? So ordinary that you could hear these and maybe decide later if you want to do something about them? That would be a sign you see him as ordinary. That you hear he has a great treasure, that he's the one who actually is spreading the seed of the kingdom, that he's the one who actually came to bring judgment. And you go, interesting facts. I'll think about that later. Or are you hearing him as the king of the universe who actually came to bring about redemption in ways that actually want to rescue you? And are you eager to respond to what the king has said? What I'm so fascinated by is the thing they stumbled over was actually one of the most beautiful things about Jesus. He came into an ordinary family in an ordinary way and actually a subordinary way. Like the possible illegitimate child of a single mom. So we think about even all that happened last week to think about where Jesus aligns himself and how he comes in to this world. It says a lot about how he has compassion. Hebrews would tell us that he took on kind of our form and came into our world to show compassion to us and that he was born to a poor family without power in a no-name town in a very common space. It said he came to identify with us, to live the life that we should have lived so that he could die the death that we should have died, so he could pay the penalty for all of our sin, so we can move from being rebellious fish that are evil and bad and turning away from him to ones who actually, by God's mercy, have renewed hearts and change. Friends, the Bible is so clear. You don't have the power through your good works to change your heart. You can't just transform yourself from a bad fish to a good fish. The scriptures use the heart as a metaphor there and say that Jesus came to actually change our hearts, to take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And the way he did that was by dying this brutal death on a cross to give us hope. The storyteller puts himself into the story. The storyteller puts himself into the story as the only hope we have for a Messiah, a Savior, and one to rescue us. We couldn't do it on our own. The story's telling us that over and over and over again. So this storyteller comes, lives an average common life, dies a substitutionary death so you and I can be set free. So that the warning of judgment that he gives to you could actually be good news that you could escape that judgment by what he has done for you. Jesus has given us this composite sketch. He'll tell more stories later in the book of Matthew to help round out this image, but it's enough for us to respond to today. And I'd love for you just to stop for a moment and ask, how do you see the storyteller? How do you see the one who is telling these stories? And do you understand what he did for you past these ordinary situations to actually do something that was miraculous to make a way for you to be forgiven and free? If you're trusting in that one, the scriptures say your sins are forgiven and you're a Christian. And that's why we take communion every week is to celebrate what Christ has done for us. And so for all those who are trusting Christ, I want to invite you to come and take communion as a reminder of this ordinary man who lived this extraordinary life to come and make it possible for us to be forgiven and set free. And for those who are not yet ready, that you are taking offense at him, and maybe it's a lowercase o offense, you're not angry, you're just not sure, would you stay in your seats and pray? There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray and ask for his help. Would you, would you just pray for a moment there in your seat while, while those who are trusting Christ come and take communion? The way we do it is we tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup. There'll be lines here in the front. 
There's a gluten free station over here to my right, your left, and some individual packets if that's more comfortable for you. But let's stop now and ask the storyteller to come and meet us in ways that we actually have our faith grown and you get to deal with his claims of being the Messiah. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Would you come now in this space and would you help us? Would you stir faith? Help us see you. Help us believe your words that this world has an end to it. And in your mercy and kindness, you've made a way for us to escape your just judgment and receive mercy. Thanks that it came at great expense to yourself through your broken body and shed blood. Meet with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, come when you're ready.